Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, Courtney, we're recording today's episode in October, the month of ghosts, goblins, and ghouls. But I can't think of anything spookier than the systemically racist policies, practices, and procedures that operate in something called a sundown town. In fact, we need to warn our listeners right now that some of the language we'll be using in this episode is graphic and probably offensive. Yes, Aunt Carol, this episode definitely needs a trigger warning, um, especially for our young historians that listen, there is a trigger warning. And I wish I could say that sundown towns were just a subgenre in the pantheon of horror movies some of us like to watch at this time of the year. But unfortunately, the terror is very, very real. According to the site Black Past, sundown towns are all white communities, neighborhoods, or counties that exclude Blacks and other minorities through the use of discriminatory laws, harassment, and threats, or actual use of violence. The name derives from the signs posted at the city limits of these towns that were verbal warnings issued to Blacks that although they might be allowed to work or travel in the community during the daytime, that they they must leave by sundown. Although the term refers to the forced exclusion of Blacks, the history of sundown towns also includes uh, prohibitions against Jews, Native Americans, Chinese, Japanese, Catholic, and other minority groups. Yes, Courtney, all of those groups experienced expulsion and exclusion. And most of it started in and about 1800s, 1884 or so. And it started with the Chinese Americans who lived in just about every town in the West. Uh, for example, this is what happened to some Chinese Americans at that time. Between 1884 and 1900, more than 40 California towns drove all their Chinese residents out of town and kept them out. Now, one of the more horrific incidents of exclusion happened in June 1906 when the City Council of Santa Ana, California, passed a resolution that said this, quote, the fire department to burn each and every one of the said buildings known as Chinatown, unquote. Now, on June 26th of that year, a crowd of more than a thousand white folks watched Chinatown burn. Now, another lesser known incident involving people 
uh, that whites considered less desirable happened in 1907 when whites in Bellingham, Washington, drove out its entire Sikh population of about two to 300 people during three days of absolute lawlessness. Now, a historian we're going to be referring to uh, quite frequently in this, uh, uh, Mr. Lowen, quoted an account of the incident. Quote, the chief of police recognized the universal demand of the whites that the brown men be expelled, so he had his men stand by while a mob did the work. Like the Chinamen who have never returned to Tacoma, the Hindu has given Bellingham a wide berth since. So that quote basically summed up what happened to the Hindu people in um, Bellingham. And um, it just seems that if you're a different color, you look different, you get run out of town. Run out of town on a rail, as they used to say. Now, it's so crazy that the police took a step back because I thought, you know, what people are saying nowadays that the police are supposed to protect all citizens and that Sikh population, they were citizens of that town. But the idea of sundown towns was not permitted to the West Coast. New England, where many people think it's very progressive and, you know, upper crust, those states too have their own tales of sundown towns. Uh, James Lowen, who we've been, you know, quoting, he's a sociologist also and taught at the University of Vermont. And you'll hear his name a lot during this podcast. He's done some of the most extensive work on sundown towns. And that's where he uncovered this history in New England that may shock some of our listeners. Even the KKK had a stronghold in New England at one time. And although it didn't stay that way, the Klan left New England with a parting gift, which was sundown towns. Jews, Italians, and African-Americans were often greeted with those signs and verbal warnings that we talked about earlier, letting them know where they needed to be when the sun went down, and that was out of town. One resident of the Wollaston neighborhood of Quincy, Massachusetts, remembers an incident from the mid-1950s. He said this, my father was a jazz musician and had some musician friends over one night just for a jam session, just to jam out. And most of the musicians were African-American. The next day, a delegation of white neighbors came by to register their disapproval that my father, the person's father, had had black friends over in the neighborhood after dark. In his own house. Can you get that? Where he pays the bills, but they Mm. were they were not happy. Another story was told about Burlington, Connecticut, and I lived a couple years in Connecticut, and I know where Burlington is. A resident told the story about their family, a white family that had an African-American friend from Waterbury, and I had family in Waterbury. He came over to play cards, but the person always remembered that he made sure he left the party before the sunset, and if he couldn't leave, he would sleep on the couch. And whenever he would drive in or out of the town, the police would always stop and harass him and detain him and or just pull him over to run his license plate with comments to the effect of a black man in Burlington, Connecticut after dark couldn't be up to any good. Oh, talk about making some decisions and and, uh, profiling people. Oh, boy. Well, as we can see, keeping people out of neighborhoods because of their color, because of their background, their nationality, that was it seemed to be the going thing in uh, a lot of neighborhoods around the country. But eventually, 
the main target of sundown, sundown towns became Black African Americans. Now, although it's difficult to make an accurate count, historians estimate uh, of these towns were up to 10,000 in the United States between 1890 and 1960. And mostly they were in and are in the Midwest and the West. Now, they began to really proliferate during the Great Migration. And you remember, Courtney, that's when a lot of Black African-Americans were leaving the South and going North to find better opportunities. And so that Great Migration that was starting around 1910 um, was when we saw this uptick in sundown towns. Now, as Blacks began to migrate to other regions of the country, many predominantly white communities actively discouraged them from settling there. Now, as we mentioned before, uh, the man James Lowen, and unfortunately he just passed this year, very, very important uh, individual as it comes, to, as it relates to uh, history about race and race relations in this country. And he wrote, the most extensive and best history of sundown towns. It's a book called Sundown Towns, A Hidden Dimension of American Racism. And as you mentioned before, we're going to be relying on much of his documentation in this episode. But the, our show notes have many more references that listeners will find useful. Now, according to historian Lowen, the era, uh, the era from 1890, I'm sorry, 1890 to 1930 is called the nadir of racial relations in America, when Black African Americans were actually forced back into non-citizenship. It is considered the period when opportunities that Black African-Americans had experienced from 1865, of course, the end of the Civil War, through 1890, they actually deteriorated drastically. And so Lowen considers this time period the incubator of sundown towns. So they were kind of testing the waters with how far they could take Jim Crow and these black codes and restrictive covenants because they probably saw the uptick of black autonomy during Reconstruction and they want to see wanted to see how far they could push them back into second class citizenship. Aunt Carol, and you know who I blame for this. You know who I blame for this. <laughs> I know where you're first, going. I know where you're first going. Name, first name Rutherford, last name last Hayes. Hayes. Middle initial B. <sighs> all roads lead to Rutherford B. <laughs> One decision. One decision can One change decision. your life. Yes, yes, yes. Well, be that as it may, Lowen started working on sundown towns in 1999. And having grown up in Illinois, he knew he would do more research in that state than any others, uh, just because uh, his, of his familiarity with it. You know, he lived there, grew up there, and so on. Now, he anticipated finding maybe 10 sundown towns in Illinois and possibly just about 50 across the nation. Courtney, he had no idea. As of 2020, the best estimate for Illinois alone for the number of sundown towns was more than 500, which is 70% of all the towns in the state. Similar proportions of towns in Oregon, Indiana, and other Northern states also went sundown, mostly between 1890 and 1940. Now, although Lowen, uh, as I said before, recently passed away, his work is still going on and can be found at his website. 
And as always, I encourage, we encourage our listeners to become historians yourself and check out these websites and books and even your town's history, um, not just the ones we're mentioning, so you can add to your knowledge arsenal. But Aunt Carol, how would these towns advertise that they were sundown towns? Was it word of mouth? I know we said they used signs, but really there were signs? Oh, but there were. Oh, my goodness. Yes. All kinds of things. Now, and announcing and enforcing these racial restrictions, they actually varied across the country. Now, in its most blatant form, as we said before, signs were posted at the city limits. One in Alex, Arkansas in the 1930s, for instance, read, and I'm just going to read it just like it said, nigger, don't let the sun go down on you in Alex. Now, others stated, whites only after dark. Now, one in Loveland, Colorado, which we're going to talk about later, stated, we observe Jim Crow laws here. And even though there wasn't a sign, the going belief is that Anna, Illinois, the the word Anna meant ain't no niggers allowed. Now get this, Courtney, this is one of my favorite ways. Some towns even sounded a horn or whistle around 6 p.m. to notify non-whites to get out of town before sundown. And I'm, I, I, you know, I am a movie person and I visualize with movies and all I can think of is that woman, you know, this is now the start of the annual purge. Like <laughs> that is what happens in the purge. A horn goes off and you need to get to where you're getting because it's about to get scary. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I love pop culture references. And I know I've referenced this show many times, but for people to truly understand the fear of being caught in a sundown town would be, and it's it's uh, shown perfectly in HBO series, Lovecraft Country, episode two, because it is a race against time. You forget all about the monsters. You are in the car with Letty and the other characters trying to outrace this crazy sheriff who is not a monster, but he has warned them that this is a sundown town. And they, he asked them if they know the definition and they do. And the chase is on. So these towns are right out of a horror movie or they're giving, you know, ideas to people who create horror movies. Oh, you bet. You bet. It's it's art imitating life, basically. Now, that horror that you described continued to be enforced because um, many sundown towns use discriminatory housing covenants also as a way to ensure that no non-white person would be allowed to purchase or rent a home in the town. And that way they would be kept white. In the 1940s, Edmond, Oklahoma promoted itself on postcards with the slogan, quote, a good place to live, no Negroes, unquote. Now in the town of Mena, Arkansas, they advertised its many charms with this, quote, cool summers, mild winters, no blizzards, no Negroes. Oh, how quaint. How quaint, how quaint. <laughs> now, flyers for my other town, I just thought was this, this one really got me. But uh, it, the, the flyers for Maywood Colony, uh, which was a huge development in, uh, that surrounded the town of Corning, California, it was even more specific. Their advertising said this, quote, in most communities in California, you'll find Chinese, Japs, Dagos, Mexicans, and Negroes mixing up and working in competition with white folks. 
Not so in Maywood Colony. Employment is not given to this element. And unseasoned food as well. You have no sushi, <laughs> no Chinese food, no Italian food, no Mexican food, and no soul food. I'm going to no. stay out of Maywood. Maywood won't see me, I'll tell you. <laughs> now, in other cases, the policy was informed through less formal norms and sanctions. Uh, for example, businesses that serve Black customers or hired Black employees would be boycotted by the white townspeople. And of course, that ensured uh, that a few Blacks had any opportunities in those communities. And the crazy thing is, this was during that time where people were saying, you know, Black people were lazy because, you know, they were tired of working for free for all those other hundred years. But Black people were lazy and they didn't want to work. But when they would come to towns to want to work, they would get run out of those towns. So that just makes the stereotype like they don't want to work. Well, I can't work here because I can't work a late shift. <laughs> You're right. And you better not. Working a late shift would have been <laughs> deadly. Uh, basically, it, it's hard to work somewhere that you're told you're not wanted, or at least you have to get out of town before sundown. Uh, it, it's mind boggling, my dear. I, I just anyway, racial exclusion in sundown towns was also achieved with violence, just as you talked about uh, the the show. Uh, Lovecraft County and the folks of the characters beating it out of town, they were getting out of town because they would either be beaten or killed. Uh, African-Americans who lingered in sundown, sundown towns, even during the day, experienced harassment, threats, arrest, and beatings. And it wasn't uncommon for Black motorists who were just passing through these communities to be followed by police or local residents to the city limits. And often law enforcement officials were posted outside these towns with the express purpose of turning black people away before they even crossed into the city. Now things got even more extreme uh, in the form of what are known as extrajudicial killings. That's a very nice way of saying lynchings. Now the lynching of two black teenagers in Marion, Indiana, in 1930, for instance, was followed by the town's 200 Black residents moving away, never to return. And in fact, it was a regular practice for townspeople to run Black African-Americans out of town, then confiscate their property. And we've talked about that before in some other episodes. That's right. Our, our listeners, our day one listeners will remember those episodes where we talked about this happening. So once again, systemic racism is that nebulous web that connects dots from sundown towns to restrictive covenants to now expulsion and land theft. But it, Carol, I understand that Black African-Americans were even run out of our hometown, the friendly city. Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Yes, yes, friendly, friendly, as long as you weren't Black or Mexican. Uh, my dear niece, that happened in what became known as the Great Banishment of 1923. Now, here's how it all went down. Uh, after there was this shootout with a Black man named Robert Young, in which he and some police officers were killed, whites in Johnstown congregated around the city hall and they threatened to, uh, to basically burn down the all black neighborhood of Rosedale to avenge the officers because Rosedale was the uh, place where this shootout happened and where the officers had been killed. 
Now, on September 6, 1923, Mayor Joseph Caulfield called the newspaper offices and asked that they send a reporter to his office. He had he had some important news to share. He told the reporter that black people living in Johnstown were prohibited from holding public gatherings. Now, of course, he just this was a, a, a unilateral decision. He didn't talk to the city council. He didn't have any kind of meetings. He didn't talk. To he just decided this. And uh, so black people could only go and assemble for church. And then he also said he was ordering all blacks and Mexicans who had lived there less than seven years to leave town immediately. But how would he know? How would he like, <laughs> I don't have a sign that says how long I've, okay. I, I, I don't yeah. now. Now remember your grandparents and your grand, your, your great grandparents and your grandfather would have been living in Johnstown then. So I guess they got a reprieve, but anyway, the next day, in large, bold, and italicized lettering, the September 7, 1923 newspaper headline blared, Mayor Caulfield says undesirable Negroes must quit Johnstown. That was the big headline. Now, the subheadline said, uh, read this, says only those who have been here seven years will be permitted to remain and that future importations, meaning future Black African-Americans coming in, will be barred. Admits, however, that some new arrivals make good citizens and speaks highly of older residents of that race. Well, why, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So again, I guess that's how our ancestors got to stick around in Johnstown. They must have been considered good citizens. Now, the next day, the Ku Klux Klan which had a pretty good stronghold in Johnstown and outside of Johnstown in Somerset, they burned 14 crosses around the hills of Johnstown. And if you've ever been to Johnstown, you know, the town sits down in a valley. And so those hills that surround it, uh, you can see things up there and it it's, would have been extremely frightening. Now from every hill and mountainside on all sides of the city, the crosses blazed. And within 24 hours, 2,000 Black and Mexican-American citizens had fled Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And that must have been a terrifying sight. And I rarely think of my grandparents as a young married couple. But how terrifying would that be just to go out, number one, to see that in the newspaper, mm -hmm. but then to go out and see such a terrifying sight and who's to say you beat someone that doesn't like you and says, mm -hmm. well, I know you just moved here. No one good. Well, I've, I've been here my seven years. That's scary. But I read that Southerners and the place that where we think of, you know, the we see all the Southern movies and Mississippi burning and a time to kill. I read that Southerners use an example of what happened in Johnstown as a reason why Black African-American workers shouldn't move to the North. It's like, <laughs> right. hey, you know what? It's better the racist you know than the racist you don't. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and they pointed to Johnstown to say, look, that's what they're doing up North. Hey, we might lynch you in the nighttime, but you know us and you work with us. You don't know these people. Do not go there. <laughs> you you know us as racist. You don't know which ones. You don't know which one. You've known us to be racist your whole life. Your whole life. You don't know those people. And it, yeah. and we laugh because it is pure 
terror and craziness. These are it other is. human beings. But it's just, if you, do, like I said before, if you don't laugh about it, you will cry. You will cry. You will cry, Courtney. It's pretty bad. When Southerners could use this incident in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, as a reason to lure folks back. Like, wow, to that's what, bad. That's to what bad. We know. Yeah, it's pretty like, bad. You now, can yeah, trace- yeah, race family members. We used to own you. No lie. Yeah. But, these <laughs> but people, come on back. You might. It's not safe. It is not safe up north. I'm sorry. But here's here's what I found interesting. In the deep south, the states like North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, they really didn't have sundown towns. And Southerners were surprised the towns in the North and the West practiced it. They actually, they thought it was silly to run out the very folks who did the heavy lifting work. So I can understand why they looked at that situation in Johnstown and said, oh, wow, y'all are really kind of weird, but (laughs) hey, you know, what can I say? Now, not only was living in a town or trying to live in a town or or being near a town that was called a sundown town, the rise of sundown towns also made it difficult and dangerous for Blacks to travel long distances by car. In 1930, for instance, 44 of the 89 counties along the famous Route 66 from Chicago to Los Angeles had no motels or restaurants that would uh, allow Blacks to enter after dark. And of course, the response to that was uh, a gentleman named Victor H. Green, a postal worker from Harlem, who compiled the Negro Motorist Green Book, which was a guide to accommodations that served Black African uh, travelers. Now, the guide was published from 1936 to 1966, and that was pretty much at the height of when the sundown towns were around. And um, it was used by more than 2 million people because Black African Americans said hey we need a guide to help us get across this country if we're traveling and it was so much more than a travel guide it was a survival guide you know people Mm -hmm. carry travel guides to look at sites to see or places of interest not you know don't stay here they'll kill you in your sleep but that's (laughs) but that's what it was and it just goes to show something as fun as riding across route 66 black people didn't get their kicks from route 66 it it could have turned into a death march if they did Mm -hmm. not have that green book you bet you bet Courtney. you're exactly on target black african-americans knew better than to travel without the green book because If you think sundown towns were bad, imagine a sundown state. Records show that Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, and California were all sundown states, which meant that the majority of the state expected Black African-Americans to keep on pushing, keep on moving until you find a safe haven before sundown. But but I, I must speak of Oregon because it takes the cake, not a sweet one, but it takes the cake because it actively enforced sundowning for decades through numerous laws and, and ways that they enforce this. Now, here's, here's the deal on Oregon. It was originally established 
as a racial homeland for white people. That's how it was established. That's how it was advertised. That's how it was put together. And when the sun went down, it was prohibited by law for a person of color to be anywhere in the state. Now, in fact, from the moment the provisional government of the Oregon Territory was formed in 1843, the goal of Oregon to be a white homeland was pursued vigorously. Now, all of the laws passed were designed to exclude racial minorities. And this includes Black African-Americans, Native Americans, and persons of Chinese descent, as they put it. And the goal from the onset was to exclude them from civic life, from living among white or Oregonians. Now, here's how this all went. Once the colonial invaders, well, they were called settlers, but I call them colonial invaders. The colonizers. The colonizers uh, started uh, forcing the native uh, indigenous people off the lands. Um, they did this by uh, killing them off with diseases or forcibly removing them or killing them. Uh, so step one was to get rid of the indigenous people. Then in 1844, the state passed Black exclusion laws, excluding Black people from living in the state. In 1859, when the state drafted its state constitution, it was clear what the state was born as, a white racist state. Now, let's move things into the 20th century. Oregon did not ratify the 14th Amendment, and that's the amendment of equal protection under, under the law. They did not ratify that amendment until 1873. Now, the amendment had passed back in, I'm sorry, 1973. Now, the amendment had passed back in 1868, and it's one of the key constitutional corrections to U.S. racial history. Yet somehow, Oregon didn't ratify one of the most important post-Civil War amendments until 150, 105 years after that amendment was passed. Yeah, and Oregon, if we remember, in our President's Behaving Badly episode, that was one of the states that contested you know, the protections for Black people in the South. They were the mm -hmm. gummed up the works and Rutherford is in that too, but- <laughs> There he is. <laughs> he's always there, but that's crazy about Oregon. I would never have thought that a whole state with a no Black policy, like no shoes, no shirt, no African-Americans in Oregon. And that is so, that it just, it blows my mind when you hear these facts, when you say them out loud, it's borderline insanity and just borderline just disturbing. Yeah, well, yes, hearing those facts definitely sounds incredible. And historians have found that most sundown towns, because these facts are disturbing, they deliberately tried to hide or cover up the facts surrounding how they had become or actually are remaining all white. So yeah, these are disturbing facts and, and any sane person would not want that history out there, but it is there. Now, speaking of the history, uh, apart from oral histories, there really aren't a lot of archival records that describe precisely how sundown towns excluded Blacks. And this is because the laws and policies that enforce that racial exclusion have mm, 
mysteriously disappeared. But uh, de facto sundown towns existed into the 1980s and some are still evident today. So in Carol, what did Black African-Americans offer in by way of resistance to the sundown town phenomena? Because you got to drive, you have to go places. I mean, a whole state with, you know, no Black people. What, how do we fight back? Well, yeah, yes, you're right. You couldn't just not move around the country. You had to do something. So uh, there, there was some resistance, but the resistance was met with resistance. Now, the main way to deal with sundown towns was simply to avoid the ones well-known to be sundown towns. Black African-Americans developed what we call codes and ways of speaking about towns to serve as warnings to stay away. And most youngsters were given, quote unquote, the talk about which towns, counties, neighborhoods, and even suburbs were and still are dangerous. In fact, I remember as a child, my parents warning me to stay away from Winber, Pennsylvania, because uh, it's just a few miles uh, outside of our hometown of Johnstown because of their racist practices. But to tell the truth, we were already living in racist Johnstown, but yeah, uh, <laughs> Winber must have been worse. That's ingrained in, in myself and my cousin, Melanie. We had friends that lived in Wimber and they, we had white friends and they didn't understand the trepidation or we would joke and say, well, you have to come with me. And they're mm-hmm. like, well, you know, it's safe. You know, and they would say, it's not like we're going to Johnstown. <laughs> and we're looking at them like, well, we are going to Wimber and it is unsafe. We need a, a, a this is how we, we need a white person to go with us. Or it's going to be a problem, and they just couldn't understand no, why. It, it's hard. It, it well because this is so weird and so strange. It it would be hard for a normal person to get it. But anyway, um, other than avoiding sundown towns and warning about them, um, you know, Black African Americans tried another method, and and that was to create all Black African American towns, um, towns like Nicodemus, Kansas and Boley, Oklahoma, Mound Bayou, Mississippi. They were all for a time very successful and prosperous. They had their own post offices. They had their own voting precincts. They had their own businesses. They were, they were doing well. And they were all Black African-American. But that wasn't to last. And Boley, Oklahoma is a good example of how many Black African-American towns were undermined. First, When Oklahoma became a state, legislators passed vicious segregation laws. So off the bat, segregation was became the law of the land. Next, they eliminated Boley as a voting precinct. So you couldn't vote in Boley anymore. You had to go to a smaller town 12 miles away. And at the same time, Remember those segregation laws, they enacted literacy requirements and grandfather clauses to keep Black African-Americans from voting. Now, if that wasn't enough, Courtney, to add insult to injury, they subverted the Boley farmers. Remember, this would have been an agricultural community. And so they subverted the farmers by setting up something called the Farmers Commercial Clubs. And these clubs basically were a way to keep Black farmers from prospering and or being employed. Uh, for example, packs were drawn up between whites in which they agreed not to employ Blacks or to sell to Blacks. And in 1911, They took it even one more step. Whites in the nearby sundown town of Okima 
lynched a mother and son who lived just outside boldly. So, as would be expected after each of these setbacks, Black African-American population in Boley dwindled to almost nothing. So this sick, twisted plan worked. Even when the Black African-American residents said, hey, we'll play your game. We'll separate from you. We will segregate ourselves. That wasn't enough. Using the government, using voting, and using outright violence, they were able to squelch what could have been the start of a prosperous town and generational wealth for those farmer families. So they use both systemic racism and racial terror. It's a two for one. Well, exactly, exactly. This is the way it went. We don't want you living with (laughs) us and we don't want you living away from us and becoming prosperous. So here we have it. Now that we know the grim history and definition of sundown towns, counties and neighborhoods and even states, I think you have a story that illustrates very graphically how dangerous it was for a Black African-American to be in one after the sun went down. Yes, I do. Now, today's story hits very, very close to home for me. Now, for those of you who have listened to previous podcasts and even today's podcast, you've heard my aunt and I talk about how our family is from a town nestled in the hills and valleys. And I guess we didn't advertise it too great today. But it's nestled in the hill, the beautiful hills and valleys of Western Pennsylvania, Johnstown, Pennsylvania. But although I was born there and I live here now, the bulk of my childhood, adolescence, and even college years, I lived in the sundown state of Indiana um, and specifically the city of Indianapolis. And I had the idyllic Midwestern teen, you know, life, you know, did all that fun stuff. But there was always an undercurrent, especially if you're an African-American person or student of where to go, where not to go, things of that nature. And as we've learned that the Midwest has a very dark and terrifying past when it comes to racial terror and systemic racism. Um, Now, sundown towns in Indiana, as we learned, it's a sundown state. So it was just the order of the day. But the story I have for you today takes place in the very town where at 16 years old, I experienced in-your-face racism for the very first time. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. This is personal. (laughs) Now, this story is going to be about the tragic murder of Carol Jenkins. Now, Carol was born in 1947 in Franklin, Indiana. And before she was three years old, her mother, Elizabeth Gooden, and her birth father had divorced. But it wouldn't be long until Paul Davis entered Carol and Elizabeth's life and married Elizabeth in 1949. In an interview with The New Yorker, Mr. Davis proudly stated that although Carol knew her birth father, he was the one that she called daddy. So even though she met her father once in her teens, Paul Davis was her daddy through and through. Now, soon after the marriage, they moved to Rushville, Indiana, where Paul was from, and he went to integrated schools, and there was a Black population there. So that's why he felt comfortable moving his family there. And they would welcome five more children, three girls and two boys, and all of the children loved their big sister, Carol. 
Now, Carol was described as a shy, bright, happy, beautiful young girl who had dreams of becoming a fashion model. She wanted to move to Chicago and study fashion, and she was known for her her outfits and how she dressed very smartly. But when she graduated from high school, Rushville High School in 1965, those dreams of high fashion on the, you know, on Miracle Mile and and fashion nights in Chicago had to be put on the back burner. Um, And she started working at the Ford Motor Company in the plant. And Carol worked there for several years before it was shut down temporarily due to a union strike. And that strike, sadly, would be the catalyst for what put Carol in the wrong place at a very deadly time in our history. Now, knowing that she would need some extra cash, maybe for clothes, maybe, you know, to put away for fashion school, um, she started, uh, Carol made the decision to take a job selling encyclopedias door to door. Yes, Gen Z, before we had Google, we had to look up our facts in these ancient tomes called encyclopedia. <laughs> that's right. That's right. My family had one and we were very proud of it. In fact, we still have the collection in your Aunt Marcia's house. Now, on September 16th, 1968, which is crazy to me because my mom probably would have been 18 or 19. My dad definitely would have been 19. That was Carol's first day of work. And she wanted to make a good impression, even to the point, because Carol was known to sleep in on, on certain days, that she had her little brother, Larry, make sure that she was awake that day and ready to, to get up. And Larry was actually the last person to speak to her alive. Carol left her house in a beautiful white turtleneck, olive wool slacks, a brown, a very smart brown coat to keep the chill off, and a bright yellow scarf that just was all put together to perfection. And, you know, only if Larry knew where his sister was going, he might have been able to stop her or warn her about what he and several African-Americans not only knew about the town Carol was going to that day, but, you know, to stop her, even her father had had experiences in that very town. And after learning her story, I wish I had a time machine to tell her my experience in that town. Because Carol had no idea what was awaiting for her a few towns over in Martinsville, Indiana. As you can guess, Martinsville was, and many still say is, a sundown town. It was a town once known for being a Ku Klux Klan stronghold and still has that stench of white robes and burning crosses lingering in the air. For some African-Americans, Martinsville still is a place that you just don't go. Even as a teen myself, I remember in the late 90s, early 2000s, when a predominantly Black African-American basketball team had a game in Martinsville. They were harassed by parents and students and fans. They were even attacked on the basketball court with elbows and gut gut checks. One man was elbowed so hard in the stomach, he threw up on the, the basketball court. Now, that mirrored the exact treatment. So the the treatment from the early 2000s and late 90s mirrored the exact treatment that Carol Jenkins' younger brother Larry experienced when he played football for Rushville High in 1967. He was a star player on the team, but whenever they would play Martinsville, he knew the racial slurs and the threats were going to come down on them in a barrage. So again, if Larry knew where Carol was going, he probably would have told her, stop, no, don't go. 
And in several interviews with Larry since that day, he says it bothers him that he didn't know where his sister was going and he wished he could have stopped her. Even her father, Paul, knew of the racism in that town. Even when he played sports in high school in the 40s, he experienced so much racism in Martinsville that he vowed to never return. Oh, it must have been pretty horrible. So it and it didn't stop, obviously, all the way up to 2000. It did not stop. But Carol, it was said, felt safe. This was her first day at work and she wanted to impress her boss. And besides that, she was traveling with two other white salesmen from Indianapolis and another 19-year-old African-American female. And in all actuality, they really weren't supposed to even be in Martinsville. They were supposed to go to Vincennes, but she was safe, right? Now, unfortunately, just like in one of those horror movies that I like so much, the group would never make it to Vincennes. Something would throw them off course. And just like a monster in a scary movie, it was like a force directing them to Martinsville. Mm. Now, we don't know if either young lady spoke up to the gentleman in the car or even if the gentleman knew that they were putting their two female co-workers in danger by stopping in the small town of 10,000. Because like many scary settings, it's not what you see at first glance that's the danger. It's what's lurking behind you, ready to pounce when you least expect it. And as the group of four parked their car on a nondescript street, they began to canvas the area for customers. But none of them knew it would be the last time they would see Carol Jenkins alive. Now, Carol and her co-workers, you know, they said, we've got a late start. So, you know, let's canvas the neighborhood and meet back up. And maybe Carol didn't want to ruffle feathers, but I knew there was an issue, at least for me, there would be an issue when they said split up because number one rule in scary movies, never Never split up. (laughs) Never split up. Now they had chosen the east side of town filled with two-story houses and cute little bungalows. And they were going to work till 10 in the evening and meet up at a gas station and then head home. Now, as Carol walked, she couldn't help but feeling that she was being watched or followed by someone or a group of someone's with sinister intentions. And as the sun began to set behind the Western horizons, her suspicions were confirmed when she began being chased by a pair of white men in a dark sedan, hurling insults and slurs at her. Carol began to run down the unfamiliar streets looking for a safe haven um, in a town where she knew no one. Taking a chance, she ran onto the doorstep of Don and Norman Neal, and she apologized profusely and explained that she was frightened, that some men in a dark sedan were following her and had been yelling at her. Now, when Don Neal went outside, he didn't see the car that Carol had described but there was an unfamiliar light colored sedan parked near his house. And he made note of the license plate. The car's parking lights were on. He couldn't see the the occupants inside, but like I said, he did make sure to make a note of the license plate. Now, once the driver saw him and he saw them, they drove away and Don returned to his home. Well, that's, you know, I'm really surprised that Don even took those steps. So kudos to him. Kudos to the Neals. Now, they telephoned the Martinsville Police Department right away, and the police dispatched a patrolman who stuck around for about 10 minutes, 
long enough for Carol to repeat her story. Um, Now, after the patrolman left, Don and his wife offered to drive Carol around to help her find her co-workers when they couldn't be located. The Neals often offered also offered to let her stay with them until it was time to meet back up at 10. Now, we don't know if it was because they were strangers and they were white, just going to throw that out there, or that Carol just did not want to impose. She had, you know, caused enough issues for this nice family. So she declined their offer and went back out into the cold and chilly darkness of the September night. Mm, I'm I'm feeling like this is not a good choice on her part. Not a good choice. Now, not quite an hour later, and only 10 blocks away from where she was supposed to meet her friends, Carol Jenkins came face to face with pure evil. Two men had been following her since she had left the Neals, and before she had time to react, they jumped out of their car. One grabbed Carol's arm and pinned arms and pinned them behind her back and the other viciously stabbed her with a screwdriver in the chest, letting her body drop to the ground and then sped off into the darkness of the night. Now, Carol's body was found by a young boy still clinging to life, but by the time the police arrived, she was already dead. Now, it was only when they pulled back that beautiful brown wool coat they were able to see the barely, you know, the barely small circle of blood in that white turtleneck, revealing the single stab wound into her heart. The next day, Paul Davis broke his vow that he made to himself in high school and returned to Martinsville, where he paid a visit to the office of the Morgan County coroner to identify the body of his oldest daughter. The killer had punctured her heart. And she died with that stab wound. And it will be 34 years before Carol and her family would get justice. And it would come from a surprise eyewitness with close ties to the murderer. Well, Courtney, this has all the earmarks of a horror story. Sadly, though, it is not fiction. And it's not fiction that can be escaped just by turning off the TV or closing your eyes. So when we come back, we'll hear what happened to uh, to Carol Jenkins family and find out who the surprise witness was. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry. See you there. Well, my dear niece, we are back. And, you know, Carol Jenkins' death just left us on the edge of our seats. And, of course, I'm wondering when and if the murder would be solved. So what happened next? Well, when we left our story, Carol Jenkins had been murdered on the quiet streets of Martinsville, Indiana, on September 16, 1968. And although I left a breadcrumb that her murder would eventually be solved, it was a very long road to get to that point. No witnesses, 
disruption of the crime scene and little to no help from the townspeople had put Carol's murder in a category of one of those never will be solved black murders. Mm, getting ready to be a cold case. Getting ready to be one. One Indianapolis reporter quoted was quoted as saying, the town became a clam. I got the impression real quickly that there was something funny. I began knocking on doors to see if anyone had seen this gal. And I got nothing from the townspeople. After a while, we learned that nothing was going to happen. And even if somebody knew something, they were afraid to talk. They really didn't like or want outsiders coming around. It cooled and it cooled until it was futile. So we ended up just making routine calls. And when you called, you got the standard, the investigation is continuing, or you knew if anything was going to happen, it would have to be an anonymous tip. And after a while, things just petered out. And that was usually the case with these kind of uh, murders. If it were uh, a Black African-American woman, uh, not going to go too much further. But as we can see with the current situation of a young white woman who was recently murdered, all the stops are usually pulled out. So nothing new under the sun with that. Now, six weeks after the murder, by which time there had been an, an you know, accumulation of news stories bearing headlines like no promising leads in murder probe and clues, motives, or scares in Martinsville slang and police put lid on fatal stabbing case. The Indianapolis chapter of the NAACP sent a telegram to the attorney general, Ramsey Clark, requesting an investigation by the Department of Justice. The telegram stated that Morgan County has historically been associated with Ku Klux Klan activities. This was, of course, technically true. And indeed, the previous year in 1967, that summer, a Klan motorcade made a newsworthy tour of several Indiana towns, which culminated in Martinsville. There on the courthouse square, 30 or so robed Klansmen carried placards and distributed literature. Mm. The consensus was that everyone in town knew who did it, but no one was going to talk. And there was a 33 year long silence. But that was not going to stop Paul Davis and Elizabeth Gooden, that's Carol's parents, who, despite divorcing after Carol's murder, never stopped working as a team to find out who killed their oldest daughter. Now, in the summer of 2000, and just for a reference, I was 18 years old, two years younger than Carol was when she was killed. Mr. Davis hired a private investigator to track down clues in the case. At the time, he was 74 years old and set aside $10,000 of his savings for the effort. He's quoted as saying, as long as God gave me breath and a dollar in my pocket, I was determined to never give up. He said, she was my oldest child and I wanted her to rest in peace. Now, while Paul and Elizabeth were hiring their detective, the Indiana State Police cold case squad had started to reexamine Carol's case and assign two detectives to the case, which was not even done in 1968. They didn't even assign a detective to her case. 
Now, the, the two detectives interviewed over 150 witnesses and eventually got a break in the case by way of an anonymous letter wrote before Thanksgiving that year. The letter identified Kenneth Richmond as Carol's killer and that there was an eyewitness to the murder. Okay, that eyewitness that uh, nobody knew about had to come forward. Exactly. Now, putting together the clues that they had, along with what the private investigator had found, they found out that Kenneth Richmond would have had a seven-year-old daughter at the time of the murder. So two weeks before Christmas, they were knocking on the door of Shirley McQueen, who was already who was ready to tell them her very heavy, dark secret. She told them a chilling tale of hatred. She explained that her father had an unfiltered hate for Black people, even telling Shirley and her sister that if they ever married a Black man, he would kill them both. Now, on the night of the murder, Shirley had been riding in the car with her father and his friend. They had been drinking and riding around all day. She explained that as soon as they saw Carol walking alone, they began hurling insults at her, causing her to begin to run in fear. So remember, she'd already been chased once by another car. This is not the same car. This is car number two. So the the car that was following her when she ran to the Neos, this is a different car. Now, Shirley McQueen told investigators that she could tell that Carol was scared. And that's when the men really began to give chase. They stopped the car and began to chase her on foot, eventually killing her in front of seven-year-old Shirley. Shirley explained that it was her father who stabbed Carol in the chest with the screwdriver. And when the men got back into the car, they just laughed and said she got what she deserved. As they drove away, McQueen told detectives she looked back and saw the woman fall into a bush but she didn't know that she had been killed. She also told detectives that she remembered Carol's beautiful yellow scarf. And that was the detail that had been left out of past news accounts. Okay, so that would be the the clue that the detectives would know that McQueen's story was was true. Yep, she remembers that the scarf fell and blew away. And she, you know, in account, she just noticed how beautiful not only Carol was dressed, but just that bright yellow scarf just against, you know, that horrible backdrop of what was going on. Now, when they headed home, McQueen said her father gave her $7 and told her not to tell her mother, and that was their little secret. Now, according to the affidavit, um, over the years, Shirley had only told two people about what she had seen that night, her counselor and her ex-sister-in-law. And it was her sister-in-law who wrote the letter that said, hey, you know, I, there is an eyewitness. I know what's good. You need to find this person because you need to solve this murder. So kudos to the unnamed sister-in-law. Mm-hmm. That's a surprise. Again, somebody taking their life in their own hands, probably. Pretty much. Now, before she decided to go forward, uh, Shirley McQueen said she tried to talk to her father about the murder. And he said, just let it go. It's in the past. Mm, wow. How uh, that, that cruel uh, heartless, uh, just a cold-blooded murderer. Ugh. On May 8th, 2002, so to put that in context, I would have been the same age as Carol when she got murdered, 20 years old. The police finally, finally apprehended Kenneth Richmond, 
who was taking up residence in an Indianapolis nursing home. Mm, so it would have been about the time you were in Indianapolis. Hmm. I was, le- yep, I was in college at the time and he was in a nursing home, just mm. living out the rest of his murderous days. Now, upon the arrest, his arrest, the police discovered that Richmond was a career criminal and was deeply affiliated with several white supremacist groups, including the KKK. Not one, not two, but several. Several. He was an equal opportunity racist. Yeah, find as many white supremacist groups as you can and get into all of them. So anyway. And even more twisted, Richmond was just passing through Martinsville when he and his friend decided that night that Carol Jenkins deserved to die just because she was black Mm, wow now even though kenneth was arrested he would never stand trial or spend a day in jail a judge decided that on top of the fact that he was incompetent and couldn't stand trial he was also gravely ill so while they were trying to bring the case to trial they got those two blows and realized that he would never ever spend a day in jail for this murder Now, Kenneth Richmond did die in the nursing home on August 31st, 2002 of bladder cancer. So once again, justice was not served. Um, Carol Jenkins' family found out the truth of who murdered her, but did not see any justice um, delivered upon the murderers. So again, this murder, it's both terrifying and it's tragic. And the fact that it took decades to solve the murder is unconscionable. Yet, considering the history of sundown towns and America's toleration of them, it's not surprising. And the crazy thing, it went from the the murder happened when my mom was 18 and it wasn't solved until I was 18. Wow. Wow. That says a lot about our judicial system. Now, even though it is illegal, extremely illegal to exclude people from towns based on race, what's the situation with sundown towns today, Carol? Well, my dear niece, though some would prefer to think they are gone and forgotten, that is definitely not the case. If not on the books through law or signs posted outside their city limits, sundown towns to some extent still do exist. For example, in 2017, The NAACP issued a travel warning for the entire state of Missouri, a first for the organization. The decision uh, to issue that warning was in response to a bill in Missouri that was designed to limit discrimination lawsuits. The NAACP also referenced anecdotal examples of hate crimes and data which showed Black African-American motorists in uh, Missouri were 75% more likely to be pulled over and stopped and searched by police enforcement than their white counterparts. Now, interestingly, the state of Missouri offered no public response to the NAACP, but it did make a Black African woman the face of its tourism campaign. And very, that's very interesting. And after doing all this research, I can't help but get a chill up my own spine. My dad would come and pick me up on weekends and we'd drive from central Indiana to Louisville, Kentucky. But as I checked the map, almost every single town we traveled through was a sundown town. 
And I'm so happy that nothing happened, but looking Mm -hmm. back with hindsight, oh, that's terrifying. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you were, you were living through it. You were living through it. Now people still travel through those States like Missouri and the ones that you, and Kentucky and others uh, on high alert. But in Texas, where I live in 2020, a group called defund San Antonio police department coalition issued a travel warning for San Antonio. And they labeled it as a sundown town. Their press release said this, A travel advisory has been issued to warn that any Black people in or traveling to San Antonio use increased caution when visiting the city due to the city's policing policies that put Black lives in danger. Sadly, the fear of traveling, just like back in the days of the Green Book, has become a hashtag, hashtag driving while Black. They're rooted in the fear of these towns and the horror that may await them after dark. It's a very strange juxtaposition how you often hear many white citizens say they're scared to go to the inner city for sporting events or entertainment, and they they clutch their purses or run to unlock their car doors when they see a Black person. While yes, crime does happen in these areas, not just to white people, but to everyone, African Americans have this internal fear of traveling after dark and it's been there since we were brought here. Yes, it has. And and the difference so, between uh, white folks that are clutching their purses and running to their cars, we have historical documentation that it is not safe to travel in certain, certain areas. Um, now, because of this documentation and travel advisories and alerts that we've talked about, Uh, Martinique Lewis, who is president of the Black Travel Alliance, has created the new ABC Travel Green Book. And it's a modern interpretation of the old Green Book that we talked about earlier. And it has a global focus of connecting Black travelers to touch points anywhere in the world. Lewis says, quote, Black people are always alert, and it doesn't matter if it's in Miami, Vegas, or if it's Pigsty, Alabama, you know and feel when something is not right. The reality is we deal with racism on a daily basis in America. Now, with her publication, Lewis revives the Black business aspect of the original Green Book with the intention of directing Black dollars, Black travel dollars their way. So it has an economic uh, aspect to it. But she also prefaces each destination with a safety assessment and encourages explorers and travelers to enjoy themselves, but also remain alert. And that's a good point. We're not saying Black people don't travel. And Black people, the earth is your turf. Travel where you may. But many Black comedians, and and I think Black people in general, have pointed out there's a natural instinct for Black people to check how many Black people are in the same location they are. Just in in case something pops off, you give the little head nod, you give the little look, like, okay, you know, if something, if people, if those Black people start to run, we're running as well. It's a funny joke, but it has kept a lot of us alive since slavery. Yes, you're right. Funny, but true, Courtney. Funny, but true. Knowing how many Black African-Americans are in the same location is a fact of life for us, being aware of that. Here's a good example. According to the 2010 United States Census, 97% of Utica, Ohio, identifies as white. 
And that town has a hazy history that many sundown counties and, and towns share. Here's that history. Utica has, uh, uh, on the one hand, it was a underground railroad stop. And that's where slaves who were trying to escape from the South, enslaved people who were traveling from the South to the North, uh, they knew they could stop in Utica, uh, Ohio, and uh, have safe passage. But locals of the town remember that the Ku Klux Klan also burned crosses on a hillside just outside of the town in the 1920s. So it has kind of a mixed racial history here. Now, bring it into September of 2015. Letters were sent to Utica, Ohio High School and the school district office threatening violence because of interracial dating. And the letters had images of the Confederate battle flag on them. Now, the community and the schools condemned the letters and launched a campaign called Utica United. However, in 2015, the homecoming football game and the dance were canceled under concerns about violence. You know, Carol, I just have to say this. It always surprises me how the Confederate flag always pops up in states that fought for the Union. And as a Ravens fan and a Steelers family, I understand being, you know, the the other side. But for there's for something that people claim is not racist, it pops up whenever something racist against Black people is going down. So that shoots down the whole Confederate flag being racist debate, or there should be some heritage not hate people coming up to Ohio to say, hey, give us our flag back. It's not racist. <laughs> well, Courtney, you make a good argument. That flag says a lot. And you are right, you'll see it in every state in the union, not just in the South, and particularly in and around sundown towns or previously, supposedly previously sundown towns. Um, now, it appears there has been a small increase in black and brown people in sundown towns, even though they are still, uh, many of these are still 90% white. But here's the, the catch. Uh, a National Geographic reporter looked closer at some of these towns and she found that these black and brown people are mainly in jails or in prisons. And so they're really not residents of the town. But the advantage of having those black and brown people in prison is that it increases the legislative power because that means they have more people in the town because if that the jail wasn't there, that would decrease the population. And so um, it's, it's kind of like gerrymandering uh, in sparsely populated rural areas. And it's kind of funny, a town meant to keep black people out, have black people imprisoned in that town and they're using the people they didn't want there in the first place to increase you know their voting numbers mm. kind, kind of suspicious kind of suspicious <laughs> i'm not a conspiracy theorist but i think it's kind of funny <laughs> another example of the lingering effects of sundown towns is the death of Robert Fuller in June 2020. The 24-year-old was found hanging from a tree in Palmdale, California. Now, even though the LAPD ruled Fuller's death as a suicide because there weren't any signs of struggle and Fuller had a history of mental illness, Black communities across the nation have been skeptical of the investigation. And this is why. 
The alleged suicide happened during some of the greatest protests against police brutality the world has ever seen. Remember, this followed uh, the murder of George Floyd. And this hanging did not happen in the deep south of the rural Midwest, but in Los Angeles County in Antelope Valley, where Palmdale is located. Now, here's, here's why this is significant. This area was described by one longtime resident as, quote, the Confederacy of Southern California. So given these circumstances, it's hard to imagine the hanging was a suicide. Very hard. And once again, a state that did not fight for the Confederacy is using these people's flag. Get on it. Heritage, not hate people. Get on this. They are using your flag. They are indeed. Now, let's move a little east of California to Loveland, Colorado, which is anything but a haven of love based on what's been going on in that nearly all white town with a sundown town reputation. In July 2020, Barry Wesley, a Black university student working uh, in door-to-door roofing sales. Now, he should have known the Carol Jenkins story. He was held at gunpoint by a white resident named Scott Grunmiston, and uh, he was a former Utah policeman, and he said that Wesley and his white co-worker were Antifa, and uh, Wesley begged to live witnesses said, and uh, the white man who pointed the gun at him said that he wouldn't kill him, but police would. Um, In August 2020, the city council in that town held very combative debates about racism and diversity, including an argument over what Black Lives Matter means. And in a separate meeting, the council's mostly conservative majority declined to pass a 275-word non-binding resolution that aimed to officially acknowledge systemic racism and diversity value. And not to be outdone, in September of 2020, in the same town, the local school board voted to remove Loveland's high school's Indian mascot, partially because Native American residents found it racist. The decision, though, drew very heavy pushback from white residents, including the fair, the uh, former mayor, Ray Reeb. And it always kills me in those types of situations, the people who are not the oppressed party always have the audacity to say something. If the indigenous people are saying this is racist, that's what it is. There's no need for you Mm -hmm. to insert yourself, Ken and Karen. The people are saying you've already stolen their land. Just take down the mascot. Just take it down. But Aunt Carol, have any towns even tried to address or rectify their sundown town histories? Well, uh, Courtney, one community, Goshen, Indiana, is one of the few that has addressed its past. Uh, Now, a man named Dan Schink came across a community promotional booklet published in 1936 or 37. And in a section uh, that was titled For the Public Health and Safety, the, the booklet stated, quote, contributing in a large measure to the absence of crime is the character of the population of Goshen. Nationalities are 97.5% native-born white and 2.5% foreign-born white. There is no Negro population. Boy, they spelled it out. Now, (laughs) it's shink had been looking to negotiate into Goshen's racial past for a few months. And what he was finding was 
unsettling like that brochure. Though there never was a sundown sign on the edge of town, uh, the census records indicate that in 1890, there were 21 Black people, but by 1910, there were only two. And 20 years later, there were only three. Now, one con co covenant for a Goshen housing development in 1946 read, no person of any other race but the white race shall occupy any building or any lot. And as recently as 1996, there was a Klan rally in the town. So the Klan, they just show up in the end. In 1996, I was a freshman in high school, and I do remember that being in the newspaper. During your lifetime. During my lifetime. So based on all of this evidence, uh, Mr. Shank wrote about that history in an article for the Mennonite World Review. And upon reading the article, a neighbor asked him, now that we know all of this, what happened? Uh, what's Goshen going to do about it? Well, the answer was a resolution admitting that this was a part of the town's history. Goshen remains the only sundown town to pass such a resolution. Now, it wasn't without a fight. When Schink emailed the mayor proposing the resolution, the mayor's response was that it could open up some old wounds. And? <laughs> <laughs> but the mayor said it was worth pursuing. Now, Schink also approached Lee Roy Berry Jr., who was a retired professor and a practicing attorney in Goshen. He also happens to be Black African-American. And the document that Barry and Schink produced went through 31 drafts, but they had input from a wide spectrum of community and uh, got, you know, got it to a point where it was acceptable. Now, after listing the wrongs of the past, the resolution concludes with a kind of mantra. And this is what it said. It happened. It was wrong. Today's a new day. And on March 17, 2015, Goshen City Council passed the resolution. Now, a lot of people in town were happy about that, uh, but Robert Hunt, an African-American pastor from nearby Elkhart, who remembers being told by his parents not to get caught in Goshen after dark said, it was not an apology. And I was a little hurt that it wasn't. If I do something that's offensive to someone and hurt their feelings, then I need to tell that person I'm sorry. Well, the mayor at the time, Alan Kaufman, responded this way. He, he didn't think the resolution would have passed if it had been a direct apology. Um, so he said it needed to be worded in a way that it wasn't an apology, but it was an acknowledgement that it happened, it happened, it shouldn't have happened, and it will never happen again. You know, I'm going to be on the side of the pastor because people normally say, you know, when you bring up trauma or the past, they're like, I don't remember. It was such a long time ago. And the person or people or group that was affected is like, yes, for you, it was Wednesday. For me, it was traumatizing. So, <laughs> right. you know, there you go. But so what do people have who feel that the history about sundown towns, though it's despicable, shouldn't be dredged up? We hear that a lot. You know, it's going to open old wounds or, you know, it's going to do this or that. And, you know, my response. And if it does, so what? But what are people, you know, saying, you know, that this causes more harm than good? Well, I, I, 
can only turn to the historian and sociologist James Lowen for the answers, all of which I agree are good ones. He says, first, it happened. So telling the truth about them is the right thing to do. Second, leaders and government entities condoned white supremacy and helped to create it. So if we don't know about that, how can we face and deal with it? We need to know what our own elected and appointed officials did and probably still do supporting and implementing systemic racism. Third, learning about sundown towns confirms that much of American history has not been taught. So this knowledge exposes us to a huge history about race relations long kept secret. And finally, when we realize that African-Americans once lived in better and more integrated conditions after the Civil War up to about 1890, but conditions shifted to increasing oppression during the first half of the 20th century, this explains why progress for Black African-Americans has been excruciatingly slow. So those are the four reasons why learning about sundown towns is important. And yes, it's despicable history, and it's unfortunate that we have to have it from in our history, but it must be learned and confronted, or we will repeat it. And I agree. But that brings this episode to a close. But before we leave, I want to say happy Indigenous Peoples Day since that's when this episode will be airing. And if you need something to listen to on your day off, or in the meantime, want to just connect with us on our social media, visit our website at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.